Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac and we are very excited to be recording for you folks this evening. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as a very special guest tonight. Say hi, Darcy. Hello. In case you were wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there that secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It is not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We're here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, we need a few little disclaimers here. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please do not take anything we say on this show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and future. Let's jump right in. So, Dar star star. So let's do a little update on the show here. I don't know if I have conveyed to the listeners that I had liposuction. Uh huh. It is something that I haven't really shared with a lot of people around me in my current living situation today. But once I got to a certain age point, I was unable to lose weight around my middle. And I have always had being a volleyball player and a runner and, and very athletic. I've always had like a six pack. And probably within like the last four or five years, it's just been like weight has been coming on in that area. So Mm -hmm. I determined that I wanted to do something about it. So this started about two years ago. I got a personal trainer. I started the keto diet. I tried a bunch of different things to try to target the fat that I had been gaining around my middle and nothing worked. I would fast, I would do the keto diet, I would cut out sugar, I would cut out bread, I did all these different things for months, and nothing, the the scale just did not budge, Mm -hmm. which I think is a pretty normal thing once you hit a certain age. So I determined at that point that I was going to have to take some more additional drastic measures, and one of those was to consider the option of liposuction. And I went and saw a few different doctors, had, I think, four different consultations so that I could know what procedure was best for me and that I made sure I got somebody who was very qualified. Now, I feel as though I have a little bit of knowledge on this because my mom had liposuction when she was about my age. Okay. Okay. So I thought that it was an option that would work for me. And I went and had the procedure about a month ago. I had it in the abdominal area. They call it an ab 360 because it extends around your back. um, The muffin top in your pants that women complain about, it extends to that area. It's like flanks, hips, uh, upper abs and lower abs. So I had that procedure. It took about five hours in the, the office. I was under local anesthesia, so I was not knocked out during the procedure. Mm-hmm. And it has taken me quite a bit of time to recover from this. It is definitely a lot more rigorous, the recovery has been, than I anticipated. I wouldn't necessarily say the pain has been as bad as I thought it was going to be because I haven't taken any sort of pain medication. I had some pain that I took a leave for the first like three or four days of the procedure. But mostly what I'm dealing with now is numbness around the middle. And that has been the extent of the discomfort from the procedure. And then there's quite a bit of swelling that happens with it. Mm -hmm. The doctors say that it takes about six months before the swelling goes down completely and you can see the full results of your procedure. 
So this is my first foray into quote-unquote cosmetic procedures. And would I go back and do it again? Probably. Um, but it has been quite an interesting journey. And I had my first lymphatic massage today related to that surgery to try to help break up some of the scar tissue and areas where I'm getting sort of some hard lumpy deposits, which is basically when they liquefy the fat in your body, sometimes it hardens before it's able to be absorbed by your body and sort of gotten rid of. Okay. So that's where I am now. Um, I pre-recorded a few episodes in advance for the Hypochondriacs podcast so that I wouldn't have to record for a while because I definitely did not feel up to recording for <laughs> a bit there. It was at, yeah. least a, at least a week where I was just like, Ugh, I can't do it. It, was, it just it, it knocks you out, like sort of exhausts you. Yeah. Because your body is just trying to recover so bad from all the, the stress that it's under because it's basically been stabbed with a sharp object for about four hours. Yeah. So if you have any questions about liposuction, liposculpture, and cosmetic procedures, feel free to shoot me an email. I'm more than happy to share my results and my experience with you all. And maybe I'll do an episode at some point about liposuction, but... That was my experience. I had it about a month ago and I'm still recovering. I'm still wearing my compression garment. And I went for my first run yesterday since I had the procedure done. And I was a little How bit, was I was a little bit scared about what was going to happen because when I initially started running, I could feel, cause like it's sort of numb around the middle. I could feel the areas that are still swollen, like kind of jiggling, I want to say, or like yeah. moving and it kind of yeah. hurt. It felt like there was a lot of liquid in the skin and it was just like whacking it with something in the back when I was running. Huh. And I got used to it after a while. I, I did about three miles. So um, it wasn't my full run of five miles, but I did manage to do three. And it was slow. Like it took yeah. me like an hour to do those. Um, but I did it. So I was proud of myself for getting back out there and I'm, I'm cleared. I'm medically cleared to work out, to play volleyball, to do all the same stuff that I had done before, but it just was a little nerve wracking to get out there and actually do it and worrying, am I going to be stressed? Am I going to be super tired? Is it going to hurt? Is it going to make things worse? Th those sort of questions popped up in my head yeah. as I was doing it, but everything turned yeah. out okay. And I was happy to get back out there and get, get going on that. Nice. So anyway... Let's jump into today's topics. I've got some pretty interesting ones today. This one I thought was particularly interesting. I actually thought of you when I read it. This one is on msn.com. It came out recently and it's called A Man Was Pulled Over for Drunk Driving, but he really had a condition that made his gut produce booze. Uh, okay. Yeah. So a 46-year-old man was pulled over for erratic driving and found to have a blood alcohol level that was more than twice the legal limit. But neither police nor doctors believed him when he said he hadn't been drinking. As it turns out, this guy was actually telling the truth. He was diagnosed at a later time with a rare disorder called auto brewery syndrome. syndrome. Sorry, called auto brewery syndrome or gut fermentation syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? No. Evidently, yeast builds up inside of the gut and converts carbs into alcohol. <laughs> Crazy. 
This particular okay. patient's journey actually took about six years to diagnosis, tracing all the way back to 2011 when he took a course of antibiotics for a hand injury. Afterward, he said he was starting to experience brain fog, depression, unusual moodiness, and memory problems. But he didn't see a doctor for treatment until 2014 when he was prescribed antidepressants. So they're like, hey, maybe you're just depressed. Here you go. <laughs> Have some antidepressants. Okay. This obviously did not help him at all. His symptoms became increasingly dangerous, including a fall that caused bleeding inside of his brain and this apparent oh drunk driving incident. At that point, he was like, I've really got to do something. And that's when he underwent medical testing that revealed his gut was home to a colony of fungi. Woo, fungi. Including one that was more commonly known as brewer's yeast. This fungi in his gut... These microscopic critters consume carbohydrates for energy instead of oxygen, producing ethanol or the type of alcohol we drink as a byproduct. Although drunkenness is easy to spot in a bar, symptoms of alcohol intoxication can be a little bit more subtle in people who haven't been drinking. For people that experience this, it can actually appear as moodiness or confusion, difficulty focusing, lack of physical coordination, and memory problems. So any one of us could have this gut auto brewery syndrome gut issue and not know it so are they saying it was caused by this round of antibiotics they said that that caused an imbalance in his gut of that fungi 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 i've heard it pronounced both ways but that fungi dr darcy probably knows the best because you are in medical training so i'll take your word for it but um <laughs> yeah so evidently this round of antibiotics caused him to have an overgrowth of unhealthy bacteria in his gut, which caused this to occur. Wow. So there's no standard criteria to diagnose this or treat it, according to the authors of case studies about this disease, which can make it even harder to tell when patients have this problem. Yeah. But diagnosing it correctly is critical because brushing it off as intoxication via beer, wine, or liquor can lead to dangerous consequences. Like when people get behind the wheel or put their, themselves into hazardous situations, not realizing that they're drunk because they haven't had anything to drink. I mean, that sounds right. horrifying. Right. This, they haven't engaged in dangerous behavior. No. And this could yeah. also cause a lethal level of drunkenness. That was going to be my next question. Like, how often does this get to a level where it could actually cause severe damage or it's, kill you? My understanding that is extremely rare, but it is not impossible. So... When reintroduce, reintroducing carbs to the diet as a part of this treatment, the patient in the case studies have several reoccurring episodes of disorder, including one with a life-threatening alcohol level of 0.4, which is more than Whoa. four times the legal limit. But this, again, I want to emphasize this is pretty rare to have something that could be life-threatening in that manner. But alcohol in the system can cause vomiting, inability to walk, loss of consciousness, or even death due to respiratory arrest. So, I have a lot of questions. So, it sounds like to treat it, you would remove carbs from your diet yes. to kind of kill off this bacteria that converts carbs out to ethanol. Mm -hmm. Do you then go through withdrawal symptoms? I think sometimes I do. It does not specifically say in this article about it, but they can. They say that you. It's easy to have relapses if you reintroduce the carbohydrates back in your diet. So you need to live with a restricted intake of carbohydrate. You don't necessarily need to get rid of it altogether, but you need to be aware that it could cause this issue and reduce it accordingly. 
So this is a permanent issue. There, like you can't um, reduce carbohydrates until you kill off the bacteria, and then that's what it go sounds like. Diet. Mm-hmm. Wow. But then once you have it in your system, at some point, it makes it easier for it to get out of hand again. Yeah. But they've also linked auto brewery syndrome to other diseases like Crohn's and diabetes. Interesting. And they're definitely saying that they're tracing it back to his antibiotic course in 2011. That is so interesting that, that antibiotics caused a growth of bacteria. An overgrowth, yeah. And they also say that he could potentially have been exposed to mold while he was working in water-damaged buildings because he worked in the construction industry. I wonder if they've done, like, an, um, an environmental incidence to right? see if, like, that's... Like, if people super, who work super in those kind bizarre. of conditions are more likely to have it or something. It's possible. They're definitely doing a lot more studies on this because it's a little bit more rare. It's probably a little harder for them to get a large group to study. But this particular gentleman, once he had been diagnosed, was treated several times with an antifungal medication and other things to maintain a... He was given orders to maintain a strict no-carb diet until the problem resolved. So no carbs Mm -hmm. at all until they got all the antifungal medication used. Doctors also administered probiotics to improve his gut bacteria, which evidently yeah, worked so for this guy. Yeah, so he's eating like a lot of activia. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, which is interesting because doctors are also saying that the body this is interesting for studies on this because the body's natural enzymes in the stomach are supposed to protect us from these fungal invaders. Yeah. But this man's disorder finally abated, and he was able to gradually reintroduce carbs into his diet, and he has been symptom-free for over a year. But they say it can be very, very challenging to get rid of that bacteria completely, and that you have to be like rigorous about the elimination of the carbs until you get rid of that unhealthy bacteria. God, that would suck. I could not... There's no... I, I just cannot eliminate carbs from my diet. Like, I don't eat enough meat anyway... Right. I certainly don't eat enough vegetables. I'm better, but I don't eat nearly enough vegetables. Like, I would not eat if I didn't eat carbs. I feel like when I don't eat carbs, I get, like, shaky if I have not enough carbs and just straight protein. That's what your body converts to energy. Like, it's the easiest. Carbs are the easiest um, macronutrient for your body to break down and convert to energy. Like, that's why low-carb diets are so bad for people who are highly active. Right. Because your body doesn't want to break down proteins. Like, that actually causes a byproduct in your in your system that then damages your kidneys over long term. But, like, that's, like, carbs are what, like, your brain needs carbs to function. Yeah. Agreed. That's why people, like, get so, like, loopy and all of that when they, when they don't have, when they have a low-carb diet like that for long periods of time. Oh, yeah. Um... Switching over to a similar type of a case, but I found this other article on The Telegraph, um, and it's called Obese Woman Starved to Death After Gastric Bypass Operation. I don't know if you heard about this, but this woman was obese, and she shrunk quite a bit after she had a gastric bypass and, and, and starved to death because she was unable to eat after she yeah. had the surgery done. But this woman, Kimberly Wall, 44, had undergone, undergone a procedure in 2008 over her fears that obesity would kill her. But over the next 10 Whoa. years, her weight plummeted until she was just five stone. I don't know how much a stone is. I don't either. But this, I guess, was a, a British woman who passed away. But she was a mother of three who previously weighed... <laughs> I have to find out now. 
Because I'm yeah, curious I'm how much up. she weighed. Because it's, it's um, how many stone? Okay, I was actually going to guess 14 pounds, and that's correct. So if she was five pounds, she was seven, five stone, she was 70 pounds. Holy shit. So how yeah. much is 23 stones? Stones? Yeah. 23 stones. 23 times 14? 322. Holy shit. That's a wow. big weight loss. And over a really short period of time. Yeah. So, evidently after she had this procedure, she struggled to eat and could only manage two mouthfuls of food at a time. Her condition left her so weak she was barely able to walk or even get out of bed. Despite repeated attempts by doctors to treat her, she was admitted to the hospital after her condition deteriorated and she died a week later. Wow. Tests showed she had suffered heart failure due to malnutrition. And this was caused by her gastric bypass operation. Right. Right. So last week or two weeks ago now, a coroner concluded that there were no errors with the operation itself, but that she had died October 8th from the long-term complications of the surgery. Gastric bypass is a really dangerous procedure. It is no freaking joke. And it's something that I think at some point I want to do a show about because my sister-in-law actually had the procedure done. They don't do it like, it's not like an elective procedure. Yeah. Like you can't just go ask for it. Like you have to meet a lot of requirements. Um, And there's a long recovery process because your stomach basically shrinks and you can't consume the amount of food that you used to be able to consume. You have to be very careful about what you eat and it can actually be painful to eat, which yeah. is what kind of sounds well, like. What cause you to with this like woman. throw up immediately after yeah. you eat if you eat too much. But yeah, this particular woman had had the surgery in a private hospital after she started comfort eating when she suffered a miscarriage at the age of eighteen, oh. which is just tragic. She subsequently complained of suffering crippling stomach pains, nausea, fatigue, and low self confidence. But when she talked about her decision to have this operation in 2014, she said she regretted it and wished she'd never done it, that it was just such a shame she had to get to this point to realize she was happier when she was overweight. Mm. Um, And this is an interesting issue because some of the doctors that are looking at this case now say that the problems with nutrition are rare, but they are a recognized complication of gastric bypass surgery. If you are not watching to make sure that what you're putting into your system after you have this is healthful, you mm-hmm. can easily become malnourished because you're not able to get the sort of volume of food into your body. So you have to be careful that the small volume that you are allowed to get in is healthy. Yeah. And I think I could just be kind of making this up, but I think that they're starting to prescribe um, like counseling to go along with like these types of surgeries, both for g- general mental health and nutritional counseling. Absolutely. I think in her case as well, she suffered from anxiety and depression, which exacerbated yeah. her eating problems. So, and it was clear, they say that when they looked through her notes and her doctor's charts and things like that, that they could see that they were investigating all of her other issues along with her eating disorder through the years, right. that it wasn't just this fell through the cracks She had a long history of this, and it's a very, very sad case because this is clearly a woman who wanted to have a better life for herself and wanted to lose some weight so that she could be more healthy, and then ultimately it was a a decision that she lost her life over. Well, and it's 
I wouldn't necessarily say like it was as, as a result of the decision to have gastric bypass. It kind of sounds like she was just a very small percentage of people that had insurmountable complications from the surgery. Um, cause it is an effective surgery, but it is a very serious surgery and it's something that you don't do lightly. You don't come to that decision lightly. And a doctor should not perform that, that, that surgery, um, like I said, it's not an elective surgery. You can't just go request it. Um, there, I don't, I mean, there should not be, I don't think there are any doctors that will just perform it just because you've asked for it. You have to meet qualifications. Um, and you do have to undergo a lot of like pre-surgical and post-surgical requirements for the surgery because it is very dangerous. I mean, it's, it's a real, real traumatic operation and procedure. And it, I don't, it just doesn't sound like this is something that was a result of her decision to get the surgery as much as it was just some people don't respond to surgeries and especially something as invasive and traumatic as gastric bypass. It sounds like she just had severe conse uh, consequences and she was in a very small percentage of, the, of those people that where that happens. Yeah. You know, it's frightening. Yeah, it is. Um, moving on to the next article. Um, this one I pulled off of the internet as well, and it's record high STD rates in Hawaii linked to online dating. Why apps Yikes. are making sex less safe. This article was by Rachel Grumman Bender. Sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise in the U.S., but one state in particular is blaming online dating for this uptick. Hawaii is experiencing record high STD rates and officials are pointing the finger at online dating, which makes it easier for people to find sex, sex partners, and all the shit that goes along with it, along with a drop in the use of protection. This is interesting. Um, and I <laughs> brought this forward. I mean, I know that you're dating. Are you using online dating? No, I'm not dating. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> so evidently I don't have the time to date I don't have the energy to date and I'm not going to meet anybody where I am that I want to date <laughs> okay then you got it <laughs> sounds so like you know what no. the fuck you're doing um, <laughs> evidently though online dating is part of many people's lives and the culture now is sort of a hookup culture according to experts with casual sex outside of committed relationships kind of being the norm and Online dating is more connected to opportunities to have sexual encounters without strings attached. But this trend may be increasing people's exposure to a whole host of STDs that they didn't expose themselves to before. More partners equals more chances to get infections. And online dating sites have basically disrupted the way people have sex and the way they would normally sort of investigate their partners and use protection in the past with a little bit of hesitancy with regard to that. The sites that people are using aren't really doing anything they can to help with this either. Uh, I have some thoughts about this, but I'll let you finish your story. So, Hawaii is not alone in seeing a rise in STD rates. A new report from the CDC shows three STDs in particular, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, have increased across the U.S. Chlamydia is up 3% to more than 17, or excuse me, more than 1.7 million cases, while gonorrhea rose 5% to more than 580,000, and syphilis is up 14% to more than 35,000 cases, highest numbers reported since 1991. 
Okay. Um, all three are at their highest rates in about 30 years, Honolulu authorities are saying. This is pretty scary. Um, since some STDs, such as some of these that we just spoke about, have mild to no symptoms, it is possible for people to be infected and not know it. And you can still transmit the disease even if you don't have symptoms, say the experts. Um, very, very scary. Uh, what else do we got here? Chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis can all be treated with antibiotics, but if left untreated, they can lead to several different health issues. Chlamydia is the most commonly reported STD in the U.S., which can cause serious permanent damage to a woman's reproductive system if it is not treated effectively and early. Mm-hmm. Even chlamydia with no symptoms can damage your reproductive system. This is pretty scary. Um, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? I do see where they're coming from and saying that it is a numbers game. The more sexual partners you have, the greater your risk of exposure to an infection. They're making a leap though, by connecting that to a, to dating online dating and dating apps, because it's not. And, and by saying the dating apps are not doing anything to prevent it, it's not their responsibility. The responsibility is on sex educators and sex education. And we have a severe lack of sex education in this country because when people my age and younger were coming of age and learning about sex, they were teaching abstinence only. And when you teach abstinence only, you don't talk about the need for protection when you're engaging in sexual intercourse. And that is how you spread infection. And when you say all you have to do to stay safe or not get pregnant or not get an infection is to just not have sex, you're not informing these kids that are going to be eventually having sex. Right. That's the problem. The problem is not dating apps and the access to more sexual partners. We're able to act like contact each other I mean, if you want to talk about dating culture and dating apps, that's a conversation to have. But it's not, to me, the the conversation is not that dating apps and online dating are responsible for the spread of sexual um, STIs because we're not teaching kids about how to protect themselves. Right. That's the problem to me. And that's why I blame George W. Bush. And I think, (laughs) funny, funny. (laughs) I think this article, too, is... But seriously, though. (laughs) I think this article too is advocating openness and being educated and making yourself aware of the risks and the symptoms and the possibility for this and getting yourself tested regularly and being open with your partner. I think that's what this article advocates as well towards the end. And I did not include that part in my conversation, but this article does advocate that I cannot emphasize that enough. Get yourself tested. That's the smart thing to do and be safe. And the other thing they're saying as far as, you know, communicating with your partner, if you don't have a consistent, committed partner, you people are less likely to communicate something like that with somebody if they're just hooking up. Right. And like you said, a lot of these things are asymptomatic. Yeah. You may not know that you have anything, so you think that you're safe, and you just... That's why, I mean, again, I'm going to go back to sex education, and I grew up in Alabama, so it's not like we had it where I grew up. We were taught abstinence only, and that's incredibly detrimental, and that's why you see rises in teen pregnancy, and that's why you see rises in STIs, because the answer is not abstain from sex. The answer is educate yourself and protect yourself. Right. I mean, so, again, I blame George W. Bush. (laughs) 
Um, yeah. So just be smart, people. Get yourself tested regularly. Have an open relationship where you can have conversations with your partner about this. And if you can't and you don't feel comfortable doing that, then use a fucking condom. Use End a condom. And a story. It's just that easy. Yeah. Um, one more article to talk about today. I found this one um, as well on AOL.com. It's woman learns she has cancer from photo at tourist attraction. This was Alex Lasker who wrote this article. And a British tourist was stunned to learn she had breast cancer after a photo opportunity at a museum picked up on the presence of a tumor. This woman was a 40-year-old mother, excuse me, a 41-year-old mother from Berkshire, England, who visited Camera Obscura and World of Illusions in Edinburgh during a family vacation in Scotland in May 2019. She later wrote to the museum to share one of its attractions may have saved her life. Wow. So evidently she visited this museum with her family in 2019 on a school holiday They'd been to this castle, and on the way down, they saw the museum, and while they were making their way through the floors, they got to the thermal imaging camera room. According to the museum, the thermal camera offers guests the chance to see how hot or cold you are, and for Gil, the attraction revealed a surprising hot spot on her chest. So, like all families do, they entered this particular exhibit and started to wave their arms and look at the images they created. And while they did this, they noticed there was a heat patch in red color coming from this woman's left breast. She thought it was odd, and having looked at everyone else, they didn't have the same sort of an imaging issue. They took the picture and enjoyed the rest of their visit at the museum. But when they returned home to England, she came across the image again in her camera roll and decided to do some digging into thermal imaging and the possible significance of the hot spot. She discovered that this thermal imaging tool is also used with breast cancer specialists to measure the temperature on the skin and the breast surface. Wow. So cancer cells evidently can grow and multiply at a rapid rate and blood flow and metabolism are higher in cancerous tumors than in non-affected areas of the body. So as yeah. blood flow and metabolism increase, skin temperature goes up, which is how the thermal cameras can detect breast cancer's presence. I had no idea that thermal cameras can find this without like a breast scan. Well, you? I didn't know it, they could find it either, but if you think about it, it makes sense because cancer is um, the uncontrolled growth of cells, right? And so when you have an uncontrolled growth of cells or unfamiliar cells in your body, your body wants to attack it. And so that's how cancer spreads is your body is, ta- is attacking it and breaking it down and sending it to other locations in your body. And so when you when you pump blood and lymph fluid, like you talked about with your um with your massage earlier, when you pump that into an area that causes inflammation, which causes heat in the area. So that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, I never heard of it to like find or diagnose it, but that does, I mean, it does, it does make sense. Very, very strange. But at this point she looked on Google, (laughs) she did her little WebMD search (laughs) to figure out. And it was a tumor. What that meant and what this particular (laughs) image could mean. And if they could detect thermal, Uh, cancer from thermal imaging cameras and she then made an appointment with her doctor and it turned out she did have breast cancer thankfully it was only in the early stages and she's now had two surgeries with one to prevent the cancer from spreading wow so the museum's curators and the people that ran this exhibit were moved to hear of this woman's story 
breast cancer is a very serious thing and they did not realize their thermal imaging camera had the potential to detect life-changing symptoms in this way. Absolutely amazing that they saw this and that this was a tool for her and they wish her all the best with her recovery and hope to meet her and her family in the future. This woman expressed some serious gratitude that this instance led her to seek early treatment. This is pretty amazing. And breast cancer awareness is a very real thing, people. Get yourself tested. One in eight women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. So this is no joke. You have to take this very seriously. There are about 268,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer diagnosed every year for women. It is scary. And approximately 41,000 women will die from breast cancer in the U.S. during this year alone. Breast cancer rates have definitely been on the decline since the 90s, but this is due to better screening and early detection as well as increased awareness and continually improving breast cancer treatment options. Get yourself checked, ladies. And they, in the States, they've recently changed the guideline. They used to say you should have your first mammogram at 35. Um, Now they've said that if you don't have a history of breast cancer, you can wait until you're about 40 to have your first mammogram. Um, But you still should go, when you go to your um, woman's health doctor for your, your, you know, um, OBGYN, um, appointment, they should still be doing, you know, a breast exam on you and things like that. And it's very, that's why it's so important to go every single year and do it yourself um, in the shower. Exam. Yeah. Be aware of what's going yeah. on with your breast tissue. If something looks weird or it's painful or you have a, a spot that won't heal, or if you have a hard mass or something irregular, go get it checked out. It's better to be safe than yeah. sorry. It, it's simply a matter of just going to your doctor and saying, Hey, something doesn't seem right. Do not let them talk you out of it. Do not let your family members talk you out of it. You need yeah. to go get that checked out. It's not something that you want to mess with. And they also are doing, and I don't know if insurance covers it. This would be something where you have to check with your your provider. But they are doing genetic testing for the BRCA1 and 2 genes. Those are the genes that are most likely to cause breast cancer. Um, I don't exactly know too much about it. But I do know that um, you can get tested for that. Um if it runs in your family or something like that. So just educate yourself, um, talk to your doctor. Don't be afraid to ask questions. That's why they are there. Absolutely. Anyway, we're going to wrap the show up for today. So long farewell, please rate review and subscribe to our little podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, send us an email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We love your emails. We love your comments, suggestions, and all kinds of other fun stuff from our listeners. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. And thank you, Darcy, for being our very special guest star tonight. Sure. Bye.